Well, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 9 through 24. And we'll be looking at uh, the challenging story of Simon and whether he was a true convert or a false convert. And there is uh, much difference of opinion as to this, but we'll... uh, Give it a shot to study it together this morning. In Acts chapter 8, and I'll start reading in verse 9, and remember that Stephen, one of the seven who had been chosen to minister to the Hellenistic widows, has been stoned to death. As a result of that, there was a persecution that broke out within the church uh, in Jerusalem. Many of the saints began to scatter And as they scattered outward, they took the gospel with them. And Philip now moves from Jerusalem straight north into the area of Samaria. And there he's preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. And many are coming to faith. Uh, Philip is doing signs and wonders. He's preaching. People are getting saved. And then this individual by the name of Simon gets saved also. So let me uh, pick it up uh, starting in verse 9, and I'll read down through verse 24. And again, since this is the Word of God, please give very careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, They were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, "May your silver and perish, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness." and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, 
Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, this account uh, about Simon certainly raises the question of whether or not he was a true believer or not. And it raises the important question about what are the key elements of true saving faith. This is something that the church has often been very cloudy and confused about. And Simon will become our test case, if you will, for evaluating uh, a faith to see whether it's genuine or not. And there's not agreement when it comes to Simon. Uh, There's a difference of opinion as to whether or not the sin issues that Simon is wrestling with is a matter of salvation or just sanctification. And so there's differing opinions, but we're going to work through it. And uh, I'll give you a a spoiler uh, at the at the front of it. I think he's lost as a goose, but we'll get into that as we as we work through it. Let me begin by just talking about the uh, the reality of a defect of faith. And a defect of faith is a faith that believes, but it doesn't save. And there is such a thing as that uh, found in Scripture. Now, there's three key elements to true saving faith. You've got to have knowledge. You've got to have knowledge of the Gospel. Secondly, you've got to have assent. You've got to believe that your knowledge is true. And thirdly, you have to have a personal trust in Jesus Christ to save you. You've got to have knowledge. You've got to know the facts of the knowledge of Jesus about His life, His death, His resurrection. He died for our sin. No one else can do that. You have to have knowledge of the Gospel. But secondly, in addition to that knowledge, you have to have assent. You've got to assent to the truthfulness of what you know in your head. But the problem is that many people have a belief that has knowledge, a belief that has an assent, I believe it's true, but they stop there. And that level of faith will not save you. Many have an intellectual belief. They have knowledge of the gospel. They believe that that's true, but they've just never really personally come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. For example, James said in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So they believe, demons believe that God is one. They have knowledge. And they believe that that knowledge is true because they shudder in the presence and in the knowledge of, of knowing God, that one day God will judge them. They have no question about it. They believe that's true. But of course, they never have faith in Jesus Christ. It's impossible for demons to have faith in Christ. But James says demons believe. So that's a form of belief that will not save you because it has knowledge, it has assent, but there's no personal trust in Jesus Christ. The demons know who Christ is. Remember in Luke chapter 4, the demons spoke out, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
So demons believe it. were also coming out of people shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Christ, i.e. the Messiah. So demons know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons know that Jesus is the Messiah. They have knowledge. They have assent. They know that one day He will judge them but they do not have saving faith. That's the kind of faith and belief that will not save you because there's no personal faith in Jesus Christ which demons cannot have. But sinners oftentimes fall into that same type of faith. They have knowledge. They have assent. But they've never personally humbled themselves, been convicted of their sin, repented, and turned in faith to Jesus Christ alone to save them. Save me from my sins, O Lord Jesus. They've never done that. Now there's many examples of this kind of defective faith. Judas is kind of the poster boy for it, right? Uh, he had knowledge of Christ. He certainly believed that to be true to a certain extent, but he was never truly saved. Paul in Titus chapter 1 speaks of these kinds of believers who says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They were not saved, but they profess to know God. They have knowledge, they have assent. They just don't have personal faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 describes these kinds of people, this defective faith of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but partakers of the Holy Spirit in certain outward gifts and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they have fallen away And it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now they never had true faith. They weren't saved and then they lost their salvation. They just got really, really close to the kingdom of God and experienced certain blessings from the church without really ever actually coming to know the Lord Jesus. And of course, there's a lot of satanic activity in this realm as well. Satan seeks to infiltrate the church with counterfeit Christians all the time. He wants to insert within the body of Christ a a fifth column, if you will, inserting them behind the enemy lines to undermine the gospel for a worldly gospel, a psychological gospel, a health and wealth gospel, all of which sabotages the true Gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we see really back then and today very prevalently is that Satan is at work. He's at work to infiltrate the church with false believers. Remember uh, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13 about the wheat and tares. He said, The Son of Man sows the good seed in the field, And that good seed sprouts and becomes the sons of the kingdom. Those who truly know the Lord. But the devil sows tares among the wheat. And they grow up to become the sons of the evil one. 
And they grow alongside the good seed until the harvest at the end of the age when the tares will be gathered out of the kingdom by the angels and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Satan loves to sow his tares among the wheat of God's people. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness within the church. So there is such a thing as a defective faith. A faith that has knowledge, a faith that believes that that knowledge is true, but it's kept at a distance from the heart. It's engaged as an intellectual knowledge that they might even delight in, that they might even like to to argue about, and even defend to a certain level for a certain period of time, but it doesn't last because their heart has never been changed. They've never personally really come to grips with their sin and their need for Jesus Christ to save them. Okay, with that as somewhat of a backdrop, now let's look at Simon. We're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, that there's a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic. So he was a magician. The word to practice magic here in verse 9 refers to uh, practicing magic presumably presumably by invoking supernatural powers of, of Satan to employ witchcraft or to be a sorcerer. So Simon was a sorcerer. Now some think that Simon was just a prophet-motivated entertainer like an illusionist who had mastered the art of trickery. Uh, It'd be like a street magician, like David Blaine, if you've ever heard of him, or some of the skills of like a Harry Houdini that that could, uh, an escape artist, and he did these magic tricks, but he's just an illusionist. But I think really he's more than just an illusionist. I think given the prevalence of demon possession and demon activity in the first century, I think he was actually a man who was a Satanist who actually had tapped into satanic powers. Sorcerers back then had a link to the supernatural world. And they claimed that they could pronounce supernatural curses and cures on other people, all for a fee, all for a price. Now sadly, witchcraft is thriving today, just as it did back in the first century. The occult practices are very popular today. Uh, In a recent article that I read a few days ago, uh, they said that witchcraft is thriving in America with an estimated 1.5 million Americans now identifying as witches. Now that's the same number, 1.5 million, that you'll find in the Presbyterian Church USA. So the Satanists, the witch uh, clans in America, are the same number as in the PCUSA. One of the uh, witches by the name of Dakota, a 29-year-old transgender queer witch, it's a man who thinks he's a woman, 
and co-owner of a, of a witch shop, uh, decided to pronounce a ritual hex on the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So she, he, thinking he's a she, he uh, had a public uh, event made out of it. Of course, it cost you 10 bucks to sit in, sit in and observe them pronouncing this hex. But a ritual hex was, uh, could cause physical harm, such as physical disfigurement or even death. But the nature of the hex that uh, uh, she, he pronounced was to basically expose Chief Justice Brett Kavanaugh for who they are, especially as an impotent man, as impotent man. And by the way, they also put three hexes on President Trump. The curse began with a recitation of Psalm 109, verse 8, let his days be few, let another take his office, which you remember was quoted back in uh, Acts chapter 1 by Peter to refer to Judas. But Satan always likes to twist the Word of God, right? He likes to quote Scripture to deceive gullible people and then to redirect it, and that's exactly what they did. And of course, uh, they claimed that the hex was successful. But they look upon the Bible as a spell book, particularly the book of Psalms. This is going on in America. It's very quite prevalent today. Well, this was the kind of person that, that uh, Simon was. He had access and had tapped into a certain level of satanic power. And he was amazing people with his magical uh, feats. In verse 9, we're told that he was claiming to be someone great. And that word for great is the word in Greek for magus. So uh, Simon's is normally called Simon Magus. Um, but basically what he's doing is he's tooting his own horn. He's boasting in his own powers. He had a, he had a gigantic ego, kind of like Muhammad Ali that used to go around always saying, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. Uh, that's what Simon would do. I, I'm the greatest. And uh, he was uh, so full of himself But apparently, the people of Samaria bought into it because of all these incredible uh, so-called signs that he was performing in verse 9. He's astonishing the people of Samaria. And in verse 10, they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. So again, the... The people from the most important to the least important believe that he was a man who, who walked with God, whatever God that was, and, and that God manifested His power through Simon. So the people called him the great power of God. He was like the, the grand wizard, the, the, the grand uh, poobah, or the, or the big gahuna of the, of the Samaritan witch's guild, I guess. The big enchilada, or whatever you want to call this guy. And he had impressed others with the powers of Satan that no doubt he was manifesting. Now Peter and, and Paul would never do this. They would never accept that kind of praise or boast in themselves. But you can see the incredible contrast between Simon and Peter and the other apostles. 
But then the amazing thing is, though he was astonishing them in verse 11 with uh, his magic arts, and they were all giving attention to him because he had been doing this for a long time, verse 11, doing all these incredible signs. But in verse 12, when the people believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even, verse 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized in verse 13. So now we find that Simon becomes a believer. Well, now what did he believe? Well, in verse 12, Philip is preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God speaks to primarily to God's reign and rule in the hearts of His people. But it's, it's even larger than that. The kingdom of God is, is God's reign and rule over His people. His reign and rule over His enemies, even Satan. And His reign and rule over the cosmos that He has created. The kingdom of God has both a present manifestation and a glorious future consummation. The kingdom of God was manifested in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Remember, He said that if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. It's not being offered and then it's going to be postponed. No, it has come. It's manifested by Jesus casting out demons. It's manifested by Jesus' miracles. And it's manifested by Jesus preaching the Gospel. When Jesus was officially installed as king was at his resurrection. So that now he has all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. That's part of the great commission. And Paul says in Colossians 1 that every believer has been rescued from the domain of darkness and has been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the kingdom of God is now the kingdom of Christ is now Christ is is the king of that kingdom. And it will continue throughout this age and have a glorious consummation when Jesus comes back. So the point is, true saving faith has to believe in the kingdom of God. In other words, true saving faith must understand that when you come to Jesus Christ, you don't just come to Him as Savior, you come to Him as your King, as your Lord, as your Master. And so, Philip was preaching the kingdom of God. He's also preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And here the name is one of those key pregnant words which really uh, summarizes the entire ministry of Jesus. When you preach the name of Jesus, you preach about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that's exactly what Philip did. When he preached the name of Jesus, not just preaching Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's talking about how Jesus was born of a virgin. How Jesus was the Son of God. How Jesus lived a sinless life. How Jesus came and died on the cross to suffer for our sins. How Jesus rose again on the third day. How Jesus ascended up into heaven now sits at the right hand of God the Father. That He's fully God. That He's fully man. There's no other Savior than Jesus Christ. That's what is meant when Philip preached the name of Jesus Christ. All of that's really kind of involved. And so we read that Jesus 
Philip preached Jesus as the King of the kingdom of God, the Savior of God's people, and ultimately the judge of God's enemies. All of that is involved in preaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Well, amazingly, in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. So now he who had, had amazed others by his own magical acts <clears throat> is now amazed by what Philip had been doing in his presence. His uh, faith probably had knowledge. It probably had a scent. He's amazed. He believes it. He's seeing the miracles which attest to the truthfulness of the gospel that Philip was preaching. But did he really become a new convert who joined the fellowship of the saints? Or was he a satanic pawn who became a church member? Was his salvation faulty? Or was his sanctification faulty? Was he part of the wheat? Or was he one of the tares? Well, we we read on in the next verse... Well, actually still in verse 13, that after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. So you could say, you know, it looks like he he could have come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Notice he, he hung close with Philip in verse 13. He continued on with Philip. As he observed the signs and the great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed, but he, he continued with Philip. He probably followed Philip around as one of his starry-eyed fans. Because for the first time in his life, Simon saw a power greater than his own. And he was amazed that his own powers were probably being eclipsed by this Philip preacher who was preaching Christ and doing these incredible miracles and signs as well. But even though he followed closely with, with Philip and continued with Philip, that's no guarantee of saving faith. Judas continued on with Jesus for three, three and a half years and certainly was not saved. Your close association with godly people isn't a guarantee that your faith is genuine. But at least so far in verse 13, it's optimistic. Well, let's, uh, let's read on though. <clears throat> because it, it goes downhill from here. So Peter and John have showed up. They've been sent because the Samaritans have believed and baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. So we pick it up in verse uh, 17. And it says... Then they began laying their hands on them. That is, Peter and John laying their hands on the Samaritans who had come to faith. And they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now at this point, we began to uh, evaluate the reality of his faith. Now again, no one knows the heart of another person. All we can go by is what is recorded in Scripture and make some observations. But it seems to me in looking at this that, uh, that it appears to me that Simon's uh, faith was defective on four counts. 
I think he had a defective mind. <clears throat> I think he had a defective theology. I think he had a defective heart and ultimately a defective repentance. If you look at his mind, back up in verse 13, I, we observe that when he came to faith and believed and was baptized, what, was, what, what captivated his heart? What captivated his mind? His thoughts. Well, in verse 13, we read that Simon believed, was baptized. He continued on with Philip. And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So I think what we see in his mind is that he was focused upon the supernatural. He was focused upon observing and seeing the signs and the great miracles in verse 13. And he was constantly amazed. Is he amazed that Jesus Christ would have such love for such a wretched sinner as he that he would come down to save him? No, that's not what he's amazed about. He's amazed in the signs and the wonders that Philip was doing. He's constantly amazed. Wow, look at that miracle. Look at that sign that he did. So his mind seems to be absorbed and and wrapped up and focused upon the supernatural. And that's not a good foundation for true saving faith. You see, the miracles are signs that point to the truth of the gospel. They're not to be the main course of the gospel meal, but merely appetizers awaiting the main dish, which is Jesus Christ and His love and grace and mercy through His atoning death on the cross. People who are continually drawn to signs and wonders are putting their faith more in miracles than in Christ. And there's such a thing as being intoxicated with the supernatural that distracts Someone from the true issues of the gospel. Remember all the way back in the very early parts of Jesus' own earthly ministry in John chapter 2. It said that many believed in His name observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them for He knew all men. And what those verses in John 2, verse 23 and 24 seem to indicate is that they came to believe in Jesus because of the miracles. But Jesus realizing that their heart, their mind was defective, was not entrusting Himself to them because He knew them. That they were not really true believers. That they became, they put their faith in Jesus as a miracle worker, not as a Savior. They put their faith in Jesus because He did all these incredible signs, not because they needed forgiveness. And whenever a faith is based upon these signs and wonders, it's not a good foundation for true saving faith. So I think in verse 13, Simon has a defective mind. Secondly, I think he has a defective theology in verses 17 through 19. Look at what we read. Again, in verse 17, they uh, began laying their, their hands on Him. 
I'm sorry, verse 7. Yeah, they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving uh, the Holy Spirit. And what we see is that in verse uh, 17, then let me read verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So his theology, I think, is a bit skewed here. Because notice in verse 18, it says that Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he's seeing something. When, when Philip, well, I'm sorry, when uh, Peter and John laid their hands on the people and they started receiving the Holy Spirit, Simon saw something. Now, what did he see? Well, maybe they spoke in tongues as they did at Pentecost. Doesn't say that, possibly. Maybe there were words of prophecies being uttered. Maybe there were other miracles. Or maybe there was an outpouring of joy that was so visual that Simon saw that. And when he saw that, those signs, whatever it was that he saw, he lusted after the power to be able to impart the Spirit himself. There was a selfish uh, centeredness there, I think, in, in what he saw, that he wanted that power, that authority himself. Now, there's no indication in these verses that Simon himself actually received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That when... Peter and John were laying their hands on them. They were receiving the Holy Spirit. But Simon sees them receiving the Spirit. It doesn't ever say that Simon himself also received the Holy Spirit. It's just not indicated. And when he saw that they were receiving the Holy Spirit, when Simon saw the outward manifestations of it, then he wanted that power. But he, he, he's presented more as an observer. He sees it in verse 18. Probably not experienced it himself. He was an observer, not a participant. And again, when the apostles are laying on their hands on people and they were getting the Holy Spirit, Simon wanted his hands to have the same power. I think he's intoxicated with power. He wants to do what only the apostles had the authority to do, that is bestow the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be on their level. So he's kind of nominating himself to be the role of an apostle. And by the way, I'll give you money if you give me that power too. But I want what you want. I want to be on your level. He needed this new power in his own repertoire, if you will, because he was probably losing his own fan base at that point in time. His own star was fading, being eclipsed by the brighter light of Philip and then Peter and John. And he needed a religious makeover really, really quick. And so he thought that if he could buy that, the, the power, then he would re regain his status, if you will. So I think theologically his, his focus is faulty because again, he's, he's still preoccupied with, with what he saw, the, the signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But his theology is also faulty because he, he kind of views the Holy Spirit as a power or a commodity that you could buy. So he comes to Peter and he says, you know, Verse, uh, again, verse 18, he offered them money so they would give him that power. 
So his theology is defective in the sense that the Holy Spirit now is not a person because you don't buy a person except in slavery, right? So the Holy Spirit is a power. Holy Spirit is a commodity that you could actually buy with money. So his theology is very, very defective because the Holy Spirit is, can be bought and controlled by man. And that's kind of the way the, the Jehovah's Witnesses view the Holy Spirit too, by the way. The Holy Spirit is just a power. He's not a person. He's a power of God. And so he has a similar defective theology about the Holy Spirit. But he also has a defective theology about the nature of grace. He thinks he can buy it with money. Now, you've got to understand from Simon's background as a magician. In his craft, the gifted practitioners of religious magical arts could sell their secrets to other people for money. That's the way they did it back then. If you had certain powers, you could sell your secrets of how you got those powers to someone else, but you always did it for money. Because it's show me the money. You know, it's kind of the bottom line there. So basically, Simon uh, wanted Peter and John to sell them the secrets of being able to impart the Holy Spirit to him. And he's willing to pay money for it. He has no concept of grace. This is a this is a financial transaction here that we're trying to make. It's like buying a franchise of Starbucks. His, his religion was opportunistic. His religion was, was based on commercialism. He wanted the power to secure a position in the church in order to make a profit. That's Simon. He wanted power to secure a position to make a profit. That's the way they did it in the magical world back then. So that his mind is still on the worldview of, of the magician and his aim ultimately is self-glory, not God's glory. See, the idea that God's blessings can be bought is defective theology. Grace cannot be bought. Grace is free. And this, uh, by the way, torpedoes the Roman Catholic Church's view of indulgences, doesn't it? That you can actually pay money to the church to buy grace from God, whether it's forgiveness or getting, you know, one of your relatives out of purgatory or something like that. You cannot buy God's grace with money, but that's what Simon thinks. So his theology is faulty, his focus is faulty, he has a faulty view of the Holy Spirit, he has a faulty view of the grace of God. And by the way, this is where the word simony comes from. Simony is uh, the buying or selling of church privilege or position. Like uh, back in the old the ninth and 10th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church did this a lot. You could buy the office of being a cardinal or a bishop or a priest or a deacon for money. That's called simony. And it was later widespread within the Roman Catholic Church. People thinking that if they can give money to the church, then they can buy grace or position or power or status. And that's defective theology. That's where Simon is. You know, it's interesting. People today still kind of fall into that trap. 
They try to buy or merit God's favor by promising to be good. God, I promise if you'll just get me out of this jam that I'm in, Lord, I'll be good. What? That's a form of simony. Lord, I want to I want to buy you off. I want to buy your grace and I'll change, Lord. I promise I'll change if you'll just do this for me. Or the foxhole conversions. That's that's a form of simony. Uh, Lord, I'll, I'll do anything to get this blessing. I'll do anything to get this promotion. I'll do anything to remove this affliction. Oh God, just I'll, I'll do whatever thing. I'll, I'll buy your your favor and your grace. A man gives a million dollars to a charity. Why? For the glory of God? No. So they'll put his name on that new building they're putting up. It's a form of simony that people fall into. W. A. Criswell, one of the old great. Baptist preachers said money can buy many things, but nothing of lasting value. Money can buy entertainment, but money cannot buy true happiness. Money can buy clothes to cover a body, but money cannot buy a new body. Money can buy medicine, but money cannot buy health. Money can buy diamonds, but money cannot buy love. Money can buy the recognition of man, but money can never buy the recognition of God. God's servants are not to make merchandise of the gospel of the grace of God. God's servants are not to peddle the gospel like a can of beans. As Jesus told His disciples in Matthew chapter 10, go forth and Heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons for freely you have received. So freely give. See, that's the nature of the Gospel ministry. And Peter and Paul never charged to preach or to have the grace of God. It's a free gift of God. But Simon does not understand that. So Simon had a defective mind. He had a defective theology. He also had a defective heart. Look at verse 20. Look at how Peter now responds to Simon's offer of money to buy the gift of being able to to impart the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let me just start in verse 19. As Simon says, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now here's Peter. You could say the, 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 the lead apostle, if you will, who now is exposing Simon's heart as being defective. And notice what he says in verse 20. May your silver perish with you. Now, to fully understand what Peter has just said to Simon, you've got to understand that this word for perish is a very, very strong word, oftentimes used for damnation in hell. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus said, The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And that's the same word perish here. And Paul in Romans 9 says that, that uh, God with, uh, deals with patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Same word here, perish. 
So that basically what Peter is saying to Simon is, Simon, you and your silver can go to hell. And he's not in any way uh, saying profanity. He is pronouncing a, a curse of God upon him. May you and your silver go to hell and perish. For so, so distorted is your theology in view of, of the grace of God. This um, <clears throat> condemnation in verse 20 upon Simon is something that Peter could do because Christ had entrusted to him the keys of the kingdom that whatever he bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And Peter would be carrying out the judgment of heaven by pronouncing this curse upon Simon. I don't think if, if Simon was a true believer and if Peter discerned that or thought that Simon was a true believer, I just don't see how he's going to pronounce this kind of a judgment upon him. It seems more likely that Simon's heart was defective. He had an unregenerate heart. He was void of the Holy Spirit himself. But then look at the, the next judgment found in verse 21 that Peter pronounces on him. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. So he exposes again that Simon has a defective heart. What does it mean that he has no part or portion in this matter? Well, the part or portion could be in, in having the gift of the Holy Spirit Himself. Peter could be saying, you don't, you don't even have the Spirit of God within you. You have no part or portion in this matter that is in possessing the Holy Spirit. Or it could be you have no part or portion in being able to bestow the Spirit like Peter and John have. Uh, some people interpret this that uh, uh, it's just something that uh, uh, Simon doesn't have the ability to do. That is, that he's just simply, he could be a believer, but he's just simply not right with God. His heart is not right with God, as sometimes believers can certainly happen to us more times than we care to acknowledge. But I think probably what Peter means by this when he says you have no part or portion in this matter is that Simon basically has no share or inheritance in the Lord. He has no share or portion of the Spirit of God within him. He's certainly unqualified to be an agent for imparting the Holy Spirit because his heart is not right before God. Now again, that phrase in and of itself could certainly refer to a believer at times. Or it could certainly refer to an unbeliever. But if it's uh, true of a believer, then they will certainly repent like the prodigal son and come back home. But I'm thinking it's probably more indicative of a bad heart. And then in verse 22 and 23, Peter exhorts Simon to repent. He says, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, that the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So I think what Peter is telling Simon is that your heart is all bad, Simon. You need to repent. And you need to repent now. And what's interesting about this is that he tells him to pray to the Lord that if possible, the, the Lord might forgive him. 
so that Peter is exhorting Simon to repent and he's exposing Simon's heart in verse 23 as being in the gall of bitterness. That is, you're consumed with, with resentment and envy. And you're in the bondage of iniquity. Which is, that in and of itself is similar to Romans 7. So again, possibly a believer for a period of time could be uh, in the bondage of sin. But Simon is in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of sin would certainly fit him being unregenerate. And Peter tells him, you need to repent. You need to go to God and ask God to forgive you if possible. Now notice what Peter does not say. He doesn't say, Simon, come here. You know, I was just voted in the first pope of the church. And if you step into this confessional and you confess all your sins to me, then I will pronounce an absolution upon you and I will forgive your sins with a few Hail Marys and, and a few of our fathers added on. He doesn't say that kind of stuff. He said, no, you got to go to God. Because when sinners want salvation, when sinners need to repent, they need to go to God. You go to God and you ask God to forgive you. Because man can't forgive anybody. But uh, sadly... Uh, in hearing this great uh, exhortation to repent, we find finally that Simon's repentance is defective. Notice what he says in verse 24. Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now how do you interpret these words? Well, first off, notice what Peter had said in verse 22. He told Simon to repent, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. The very fact that, that uh, Peter indicates that this forgiveness is only possible, it's uncertain, it's possible, but it may not be certain, again seems to suggest that Peter thinks that Simon is lost. He needs to repent. He needs to call upon God. He needs to pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of his heart may be... In other words, it may not be possible. And what's in doubt here is not that God may not be able to forgive. It's that Simon may not be able to repent. So that if possible, it's uncertain doesn't in any way refer to God's ability to forgive, but the uncertainty is whether or not Simon can actually repent. So the very uncertainty, again, makes me think that Peter believes that he's, he's still lost in his, and dead in his trespasses and sins. Again, if Peter thought that Simon was saved, every believer, if you confess it sincerely, you will be forgiven. It's not in question. That's a promise to every child of God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. But that's not the case with Simon. Peter's not convinced that's the case with him. But then notice in verse 24, Simon's repentance, not only is it uncertain that he would repent, but he doesn't repent in verse 24. All he says to Peter is, you pray for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, could this reflect a true believer, a true repentance? Well, interestingly, John Calvin 
takes it that way that Simon is genuinely repenting over the terror of God's judgment. And he's so full of fear that he says, Peter, you pray for me that, that, that God doesn't judge me. Because he's concerned. He's rattled. He's disturbed by it. But others, and I think more accurately, think that uh, Simon basically is just passing the buck here. Simon, you pray to the Lord for me. You pray that all that you've said about me doesn't come to pass. And it's almost, there's no indication that Simon prays. There's no indication that Simon repents. All Simon is doing, Peter, you, you pray for me that none of what you've said about me comes true. I interpret this as if he's in total denial. That he, he's, he's refusing to, to, to actually pray himself or to repent. He said, Peter, you do it for me. I don't. You know, all that you're saying about me is totally false. I don't believe that. You pray for me and none of this will happen to me. It can reflect a hardened heart. Kind of like what Pharaoh had. Remember when, when Moses kept bringing the ten plagues in the land of Egypt, there were about four times when Pharaoh called in Moses and said, Moses, you pray for me. You pray for me. Pharaoh never prayed. Pharaoh never repented. And that's a similar spirit that we have here with Simon. You see, sinners must repent themselves if you want forgiveness. No one else can repent for you. You as a sinner must repent yourself. You must feel the the burden of your sin and you must turn in faith to Jesus Christ and cry out and confess your sins to Him or you will not be saved. It's a personal matter. It's that personal trust and faith that makes faith genuine and real and saving far more than just knowledge and assent. And it seems like that Simon comes up short on his defective repentance. Well, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers in the year 180 AD, described Simon's later years as being the father of all sorts of heresies and the father of Gnosticism. That's what the church fathers said Simon became after this event. If Irenaeus and others are accurate, then Simon went on to create his own false religion, his own church. So what kind of a church would Simon Magus create today? If Simon truly it was a false convert and went on to start his own religious movement, how would you describe the church that, that Simon built? Well, several things that we would need to be beware of today is that kind of a church would exalt man rather than Christ. That's what Simon did. He kept boasting about himself. People looked at him as the great power of God. And the kind of church that Simon would, would pastor today would be the kind where the ministers promote themselves rather than Jesus Christ, where all the attention goes to them and they boast about their greatness and how many souls they're winning and how big of a church they've built and all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're boasting in themselves rather than in Jesus Christ. That's one of the marks of a church that Simon would pastor today. It would also be a church that exalts the supernatural Come, we've got healings, we've got prophecies, we've got signs and wonders. And these are emphasized because they will cure you of your problems. And what you need is a greater experience with God. And we can give it to you in this church. 
And by the way, one's experiences become authoritative in your life. Once you have the experience, then you know you got the real. And Scripture begins to take a back seat to experience. That would be a kind of a church that Simon would pastor today. And also it would be a church that exalts money. If it doesn't come to you, then you can buy it with money. Send in your money and we'll pray for your miracle. We'll send you an anointed prayer cloth. Plant your financial seed in this ministry and God will bless you with a hundredfold blessing in return. Send in your money. Give us your money. There's a preoccupation with the material and the financial more than the spiritual. It would be the health and wealth, the prosperity movement kind of a church. All of these are churches that Simon would be very comfortable pastoring today. So in my view, Simon was an apostate. He never really believed in Jesus. And it's true that true faith can stumble. I mean, some of these elements of Simon's experience we can, we can identify with, but a true believer can never fully or finally fall away because his faith in God's grace sustains him. That the Lord who began a good work in him will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But I think the Spirit of God had Luke record this example of Simon for our benefit. Because it's a sad and sober reminder to all of us today that the church can have tears in it. That the church can have false converts in it. And it's a reminder that all of us need to watch over our hearts with all diligence. Because it's possible for people to make a profession of faith to have knowledge and have assent, but have never personally put their trust in Christ alone to save them. They might even be able to convince others because they hang around Christians like Simon did. He followed around Philip. They hang around Christians, but they're still unconverted. And one day they will perish because they've never truly personally cried out to the Lord to forgive them of their sin. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, there's a kind of ground that drinks up the rain, the good rain from God, but it yields thorns and thistles and it ends up being worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Hebrews 6. And it's an impossible thing to renew those apostates back to repentance. The apostate has fallen from grace. He's been severed from Christ. Not that he lost his salvation. He never had it in the first place. He was a part of the outward church. He regularly bathed in God's grace in the ministry of the Word of God and in Christian fellowship and the ordinances. But his heart was never fully in it. It was all superficial to him. And then he gets cut off and he turns his back on Christ, revealing that he was a tear and not one of Christ's wheat. He was a goat, not a sheep. And they have forsaken Christ and their doom will be certain. 
William Jenkins said, to forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, is to leave eternity for a moment, reality for a shadow, and all things for nothing. And William Gurnall said that none sink so far into hell as those that come nearest heaven because they fall from the greatest height. So how do you stand this morning in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'm talking to you personally because this is serious stuff that we're talking about here this morning. Are you a a true believer in Jesus Christ? Does your life show it? Do you see evidence of your love for Jesus Christ? Or is your knowledge of the Gospel just something that's intellectual, something cerebral? Yeah, you believe it's true, but you've never really given yourself to Christ. You never really come to Him as your King and Savior and Lord. You never really put your faith totally in Christ to forgive you of your sins and wipe away your transgressions and to give you the free gift of everlasting life so that now your desire is to follow Him as a sheep follow the shepherd. You've never really come to that point. Well, if that's your position this morning, there's hope. If you repent of your sins now, if you draw near to Christ and trust Him alone and believe that His death was sufficient, His blood shed upon the cross was totally sufficient to satisfy God's wrath for you, And that on the third day, He arose from the dead to prove that He accomplished salvation forever for those who believe in Him. If you'll merely turn to Him in faith and trust and repent and call upon Him now with open arms, He will receive you. With open arms, He will embrace you and forgive you and call you one of His own. But you must come. You must believe and repent. If you want that free gift. I think the Spirit of God is telling us. God forbid that there be a Simon in the church. God forbid there be someone who believes. But his belief will not save them. Because it falls short. There's no personal faith in Christ. And may God seal that faith in our hearts this morning. So let's pray. Our Father, we do uh, thank You for this uh, very sobering passage of Simon, Lord, and what we need to, to hear from this and what we need to learn from this. And, oh God, we would pray that if there's been anyone in this church that has just played with religion, that has just been pushing Christ away arm's length and has never really drawn near to the very heart and bosom of Christ and embraced Him by faith and genuine repentance for their sin, desiring to be forgiven, desiring the hope of heaven, desiring to to quit serving themselves and living for themselves, making themselves their own King and Master and Lord, but are willing to, to follow Christ as an expression of the sincerity of their faith and trust in Him. Oh God, open their hearts Lord, enable them to believe and trust in You alone. And for those of us who know You, Lord, and yet we all still struggle with sin, may Simon's example remind us 
that we need to examine our hearts and test our hearts to see if Christ be within us. That, Lord, you would help us to guard our hearts from sin around us and and renew our own devotion to follow Christ and to love him and to serve him and to seek to honor him in all that we do. Lord, give us that grace and that blessing as well. So, Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Draw our hearts to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.